Welcome to Space Tool Live. You're listening to the Space Roundup podcast with space experts and astronomers Nick Howes and Terry Mosley. This is a recording of our live show of Season 2, Episode 2, also available to watch in wonderful Technicolor, along with all of Season 1 on the Space Door YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash Space Door Live. So if you've been tuning in for last year, Terry uh, Mosley, who is in my opinion, one of the most uh, famous and notable astronomers uh, in the fair Irish Isles. Um, and myself, we've been uh, every two weeks uh, coming up with what we think are the best news stories, uh, trying to tap into a little bit more, uh, make it a bit more fun, talk about what's happening in the sky. Um, it's the first time also that Space Store are proudly being co-sponsored by Oxford Space Systems, um, so my company has an office up at Harwell, um, a company I work for, and Oxford Space Systems based up there as well. That's where we first met, Space Store guys. Uh, Oxford Space Systems do amazing stuff with SAR, synthetic aperture radar, etc. So thanks very much to them for helping to sponsor the show. Um, I guess we just crack on now and, and tell you what's happening in, in the big wide world of space, as it were. So yeah. Let's move on to our first story. So... Oh, back, back, back one, back one. We're on, there we go. Virgin Orbit. You've seen what the second story is as well. Virgin Orbit, right. So anyone who's been following the whole what's happening in the UK in terms of UK launch. So for the last few years now, well, actually quite a, quite a number of years, uh, the United Kingdom has had aspirations to become a spacefaring nation. Now, the UK does an awful lot in terms of launch already. We do an awful lot of uh, instrumentation development. We do an awful lot of systems development, system design, software design, uh, companies like Sysis, slash CGI as they now are, uh, have done work for decades in terms of the onboard computers of many of the most famous space missions, things like Rosetta, for example, a lot of the work done here in the UK. Um, some of the major instruments on the biggest telescopes in the world, like the James Webb Space Telescope, which is hopefully going to be launched this year. Again, the MIRI instrument from there, which is one of the key and critical instruments in that developed in the UK. So the UK's got a really good track record in terms of scientific instrumentation, building satellites, companies like Surrey Satellites, for example, they develop a huge number of satellites pretty much between 30 and 40 percent of all of the small satellites in the world are developed in the UK. So we've got this really proud decades-long heritage of the whole space thing, but we don't do much in terms of actual launch. We don't do anything really in terms of actual launch, not in 50 years since Black Arrow Prospero satellite uh, was put up. Uh, and that wasn't even launched from the UK, that was launched from Woomera in Australia. So what the aspiration now is that there are a number of organizations, a number of companies who are vying to be the first to launch from the UK, uh, either horizontal or vertical launch. Now, the vertical launch sites are all predominantly up in Scotland. You've got Sutherland, uh, you've got Shetland, uh, which is uh, backed by Lockheed Martin, the biggest defense, one of the biggest defense primes in the world. Uh, you've got various others in the Western Isles, etc., all dotted around Scotland. And you've got one horizontal launch site in Presswick. Now, for England, as it were, not the not the north of the border in Scotland, we've got one site currently proposed. I mean, there's potentially another one in Wales with Clambedda, but the one that's already got government backing, government sanctioning, is the site in Newquay, which is Spaceport Cornwall. Now, it's a really good location in terms of it's a commercial airport runway, etc. And potentially, the idea is that Virgin Orbit, who are part of the entire Virgin Empire, so got Virgin Galactic, who are going to be sending tourists up in the next few years, we all hope, uh, using the White Knight system and uh, Spaceship Two, uh, which is all being kind of tested and refurbished, etc., and getting ready for, for human spaceflight. 
Virgin Orbit's slightly different kettle of fish in that what they're doing is they've got a repurposed and refactored 747 aircraft known as Cosmic Girl. Uh, this thing takes off currently from the Mojave Desert. Uh, in the United States, where the test launch had been happening. And the first test launch last year wasn't a success. Um, sadly, the, the rocket that drops from the aircraft failed to kind of perform all of its burns and just dropped away. So you've got Launcher 1, which is this rocket. Now, inside this basically big missile are numbers of, of satellites, small CubeSats up to medium form factor satellites, nothing huge, nothing like the giant behemoths to say Envisat, those, those kind of size. But it's capable of launching quite a significant payload. And NASA put a lot of confidence in this, so much that they sanctioned and put on the, the second test launch a whole slew of small CubeSats. And this was a success. It was a, it was a phenomenal success. Apparently, the quote from Virgin Orbit's mission control room was, they were going bonkers, uh, which I love. It's, a, it's such a British expression. So this thing takes off, flies up to about 35,000 feet. Uh, the Launcher 1 rocket drops away from uh, the 747, which then banks away. The rocket then performs an ignition burn. It goes up into orbit and then effectively deploys the satellites like any other rocket would from orbit. Now, you think, well, why would you do this? Um, the logic of it is that with a horizontal launch, you haven't got some of the infrastructure issues that you would have with a vertical launch site. Um, it's also the first time this has ever been done with an airdrop rocket using liquid fuel. So it's been done in the past specifically by defense organizations with solid rocket boosters, but never with a liquid fuel. So this was liquid oxygen RP-1, which is a really popular combination now in terms of getting things into orbit. Um, like I said, first time with, a, with this kind of propellant. They're aiming for 24 rockets per year. Now, not all of those will be launched from the UK. There'll be hopefully several from the UK in the next few years. Uh, Spaceport Cornwall have just taken on a new uh, acting director, as it were, acting head of operations, uh, Melissa, who absolutely fantastic. Um, and they're doing an awful lot in terms of trying to regenerate interest and business for Cornwall, because Cornwall, obviously, in the COVID crisis, has been decimated in terms of tourism. So to see this thing go up and launch these 10 CubeSats on this NASA LSP program, this kind of uh, launch test program, I thought was really good. The other advantage with this is it's over the ocean. So it takes off in the Mojave Desert, or in the UK case from, the, from Cornwall, but will then fly out over, in the case of Cornwall, the Atlantic Ocean, and can pick an optimal nominal launch trajectory and launch site. So if there's a wind cell or there's some weather condition, for example, in one area, and even though it's at 35,000 feet, obviously you can still get high velocity winds and, and various issues, they can change where they drop and launch from. And it's a really, really flexible system. Now, this gives issues in terms of range safety, etc. The range safety calculations for this are staggering, let's put it that way. But it is a very fast turnaround, very flexible system. They've got this portable refueling station called the TGOS, which is basically a, a gigantic truck with all of the different propellants on board, safety systems on board. They don't need to have, as I said, a lot of the infrastructure that you, you're stuck with with vertical launch sites. And I think this is a really good boost potentially for the UK in terms of launch. I don't know if you've got any extra thoughts on that, Terry, but... Yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense. Basically, you're using the aerodynamic lift of the 747 wings rather than brute force and an awful lot of fuel to get the thing up to the first 35,000 feet. Uh, and every liter and every pound of fuel that you burn to get up to that height it means extra fuel to get, you know, a bit further than that. So using the, the lift power of, of the 747 wings means you're getting up, uh, you know, the first part of the uh, journey with a much more efficient uh, use of, of, of energy. The other thing is, though, that as you were saying or implying, 
up at 35,000 feet, basically you've got a lot of aircraft traffic, or at least you would have normally, and after COVID, presumably it will return. So they need to be very careful, basically. You, you don't want to be dropping a rocket and having a fire and crash into somebody else's 747. And if you need to be flexible in where you actually launch from, you can't say in advance we'll be launching from a particular latitude and longitude coordinate. And they will then need to reprogram the rocket exactly uh, for its flight path, depending on where it actually took off from when it dropped from the plane. But yeah, it's a much more efficient way of doing it. And it's looking good because they've already got contracts with the US military uh, to launch uh, three more. I think the next one's going up in October. So if the military uh, and the US have confidence in them, they, they must be thinking it's going to be pretty good. Yeah, the US Air Force and the RAF are both sponsoring and backing this. And the RAF have also um, basically donated a pilot to help with the whole flight support side of Cosmic Girl from the UK. So I think it is interesting. The other, the other good one with the range safety, though, Terry, is not just the air traffic. The Civil Aviation Authority in the UK obviously have a lot of governance over the air traffic, and you would have to clear significant amounts of airspace to make sure that you didn't have any issues. But it's also the sea traffic below that, because obviously yeah. if you've got a failure in the rocket that's still fully fueled, unless you've got a really high-altitude flight abort system, you could potentially cause significant issues on the ground as well or on the, in the ocean on the mm -hmm. ocean side so the range vector as it were or the kind of range trajectory analysis for this is going to have to be really detailed and potentially updated almost constantly in real time whereas with a vertical launch you typically know okay we're going up we're going over the pharaohs or we're going over iceland we know where hopefully the first stage is going to separate where the fairings are going to drop into the ocean etc etc so um it's interesting that this whole sea launch is essentially what this is is a, an over the sea launch obviously that eliminates a lot of the risk in terms of the public um is also being taken up from what we can gather by SpaceX with the Starship where they've just acquired or they have acquired um, some oil rigs looking at a sea launch which I you know the Chinese have done successfully on multiple occasions with the long march from barges so it could be that you know 70, 70 odd percent of our planet is covered in ocean it may be that this is the future of launches it's it's kind of it's a safer way if we're looking at making space launch as commonplace as air travel as it is and with the 747 i know it's recently been retired for commercial use by pretty much everyone now but it's a very robust aircraft and it's a very you know its safety record is incredible which saying that and the words boeing in the same sentence doesn't really sit that well these days but um 747s are pretty robust so um long may it continue let's let's hope this one yep. goes on from strength to strength next story uh, this is one that terry picked up on and i'm going to hand this over to him because this is bonkers uh a sexy sextuplet star system um with the weirdest resonant characteristics ever terry all yours yeah absolutely this is uh, just one of those things uh, you, you couldn't make it up binary stars are, are quite common in fact probably 50 percent roughly of stars in the universe are actually members of a binary pair where two stars are revolving around their common center of gravity our sun obviously isn't but we know lots of other ones and eclipsing ones are whenever the plane of the orbits of the stars means that as we see it here from earth one passes in front of the other and dims part of the light of the star behind and you can see one of those yourself quite easily uh, one of the most famous ones is uh, 
uh, algol or beta persei, and you can Google that and find out more about it. And it actually dims in magnitude by a factor of over three, uh, just under every every three days. So you can look at it one night and go out and look at it again uh, the next night, and it may appear considerably dimmer. So you can, you can Google that and find out the times and so on. So they're not unusual. There are quite a few eclipsing binaries, as they're known, uh, known to variable star observers. What we have here is a system of six stars, three pairs. And it just so happens that all the orbits of all three pairs actually are aligned exactly. And I mean exactly so that they pass in front of each other as we see them here from Earth. So it's a sextuple system, six stars, and they all eclipse each other. So I actually need to look at the notes on this because it's absolutely new stuff. Um, there's three pairs, and they, uh, the first pair has a period of 31 hours. In other words, they revolve around each other and eclipse each other every 31 hours. There's the second pair, and they are a little bit further apart, and they have a period of 38 hours. So every 38 hours, there's an eclipse. And those two pairs orbit around each other relatively closely. And they have a period of 3.7 years. So that would be of the order of magnitude of the, the distance of the asteroids in our zone. Uh, the average roughly is about three to four years for them to go around the sun. Then there's a third pair of stars which go around that inner uh, double pair, if you like, and they have a, a period of 197 hours. So they're a bit further apart. And that outer pair then orbits the inner double pair approximately every 2,000 years. We don't know exactly, uh, but that's the order of magnitude. We simply haven't been observing it long enough uh, to be able to work that out exactly, but a fairly good idea. And the interesting thing is that all these stars are roughly of the same order of, of size and brightness as the sun, very, very far away, so we won't be able to see them. Uh, well, you couldn't in a big telescope, but you can't go out and, and look at them just with a pair of binoculars. But the amazing thing is that all six of those stars, the orbits are perfectly aligned so that we here on Earth can see them and see the, the eclipses. And the interesting thing is, uh, because they're all um, relatively like the sun, so some of them are just a little bit fainter and a little bit redder, uh, it's, as they passed in front of each other, we can detect the changes in light from one compared with the other uh, using spectroscopes, and it can tell us quite a lot about the evolution of stars. So it, it's just a, an almost impossible coincidence that all six of the stars orbit each other so that we see them eclipse here from Earth, all in the one system. And these these orbital resonances are things that we commonly see um, throughout the solar system. But could you imagine Terry being stood on a planet orbiting uh, one of these stars? I mean, it just be, we think we get lucky with eclipses, etc. Here, yeah. but this that would be it'd be Luke Skywalker on steroids, really, wouldn't, wouldn't it? it? Yeah, I should have mentioned they were discovered by a satellite that's actually designed to discover uh, planets called TESS, the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite. Uh, but it will simply detect any changes in brightness of the source. And then you use basically uh, your computer algorithms, or in this case, they actually set up an artificial intelligence system to look at it because the light curves are so incredibly complex and uh, that worked out what was actually happening. Uh, but if you look at Algol yourself, Beta Perseus, second brightest star in the constellation of Perseus, you can actually see these eclipses happening for yourself. And it's really interesting that a lot of amateurs now um, 
probably spurred on by things like the Super Wasp system, um, which is a, a kind of array of very small aperture telescopes um, connected to rather large lenses that have been doing similar survey work for, again, quite some time and finding loads and loads of these transiting systems. And it's something that most amateur astronomers can do if you've got a good uh, CCD charge couple device camera uh, attached to your telescope. It's one of those things that you can monitor these light curves and plot your own. Uh, these ones, obviously, vastly more complex than most amateurs could, could attain, but it is something that's Terry was saying with stars like Elgol, etc., you can do from home. So if you want to really get into the science behind this, you can do it. Do it in your back in your own back garden once these clouds eventually clear. But anyway, moving on to our, our next story, because we've got a lot to get through. This is a good one. So Proxima Sen. If you don't know Proxima Centauri, it's basically the nearest star to us apart from our own sun. So this thing's orbiting, uh, well, orbiting us, but it's basically about 4.2 light years away. So 4.2 light years, 4.2 years at the speed of light. Um, so we're talking about trillions and trillions of miles here. With the fastest spacecraft we currently have in operation, um, it would take about 11,600 years for us to get there. Hopefully in the not too distant future, we will have spacecraft far quicker, you know, potentially nuclear power that can get up to possibly one-tenth light speed that could do this this trip in 40 years. But right now, it's about 11,600 years away. So what's the importance of this? Um, if you watch the movie Contact, uh, which was a kind of science fiction <coughs> take on what was happening with SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, well, these programs are still going on to this day, even though we've lost the Arecibo telescope, as we talked about a lot last year um, and early this year as well, and hopefully being rebuilt. Um, there's lots of other survey telescopes around the world, and one of the big ones is the Parkes Observatory. The Parkes Telescope, uh, famously the DISH, as it were, which people didn't really play cricket on, uh, had this, what they call this exploratory breakthrough listen system, where they were looking for interesting signals on potentially nearby stars. Now, we know that the Alpha Proxima Centauri system has got orbiting exoplanets. Yeah, there's, there's two that we know of going around Proxima Centauri, and one of them, Proxima Centauri B, is a little bit larger than the Earth. So potentially, it could harbour life. We don't know. Until we get there, we're definitely not going to know. We may be able to detect biosignatures with some of the more advanced telescopes that are coming on board. We may be able to look at the planetary atmospheres in more detail and potentially see things like biological signatures in those. Uh, but for now, we don't know. All we do know is that a few years ago, and again, quite recently, uh, there have been some anomalous signals. One of these signals um, flagged up a lot of a lot of heads. Now, a few decades ago, there was the infamous wow signal, which baffled astronomers for literally decades as to what caused this bizarre radio signal that looked artificial. What they think with this new signal that's coming in at 982 megahertz, um, so radio astronomers, they kind of analyze the sky between low megahertz up to kind of gigahertz frequencies, um, going all the way through from the radio into the microwave and all the other um, observable parts of the electromagnetic spectrum. But the radio astronomers, they have these massive dishes, um, Parks being one of them. Um, the SKA, which I'll come on to in a bit, is, is another huge one that's coming online. And this kind of signal came from this area. Now, initially, there was a lot of consternation in the press, and there was a, a big brouhaha over this, especially with the press, because the press in the last few years have been very excitable when it comes to anything that could potentially signify alien life. We had the big Venus story last year. We've had obviously lots of debate about Mars for decades now, you know, from the 70s with the images coming up from Vikings orbiters showing potentially faces and cities on Mars, and that's all been debunked. And then the whole thing with phosphine and the Venusian atmosphere and whether or not that's, you know, an indicator of life. 
every time life is mentioned, we all want to believe. But it's kind of like there's a there's a really funny meme that goes around all the time uh, from a guy that uh, hosts on the History Channel. I'm not saying it's aliens, but it's aliens. Uh, he's got this kind of wild Einsteinian hair. Um, the fact is that this signal is most likely just an anomaly. It's probably just signal interference. That's what the astronomers think. But it's been a really, really useful test for their observing system. Now, as I said, very soon in the next few years, coming online already, in fact, some parts of it are is the SKA, the Square Kilometre Array. Now, you've got the CAT7 and Meerkat systems based in South Africa and some of the mid-frequency and high-frequency telescopes, similar to, in design to parts, but smaller, but thousands of them. I mean, we're talking about between the mid-frequency, which are what's called phased array antenna, which are almost like flat pancakes uh, dotted around the surface uh, in the Karoo Desert in South Africa, uh, through to the dishes in the high frequency, and then the low frequency arrays, which are basically, that's the image, there you go, um, basically low frequency array, which are nothing more than glorified dipole antennas dotted all over the Murchison region in Australia. They're going to be able to cover vast amounts of the sky. And this thing can survey the sky hundreds of times faster than anything we've currently got uh, once it comes online and to ridiculous resolutions. The SKA's full resolution is going to be approximately 50 times better than the Hubble and that's as a radio telescope. Now for anyone who doesn't know optical wavelengths you're looking at yeah, obviously distances I'm not doing it approximately to, to scale here but we're talking about wavelengths like that whereas radio wavelengths are huge. I mean radio wavelengths. So if you want to get the same resolution you've got to build absolutely gigantic telescopes which is why Arecibo and the FAST telescope in China really really important. Now these signals hopefully if Starlink doesn't mess this up because that's the other thing is the issue of interference. Um, if we've got thousands of satellites in orbit, plus all the junk that we're pumping out from the ground, like cellular phones, mobile phones, uh, microwaves, car engines starting, all these things have got to be filtered out by these telescopes anyway. And it's incredibly complex. The signal processing involved requires computers, in the case of the SKA, that literally haven't been built yet. The amount of processing power that's going to be required. The SKA, when it comes online, is going to be generating, I think it's around about 1.4 zettabytes of data per day. That's 10 times the global internet traffic. And this is from a telescope system. So pumping this data through to the computers, making sure all the telescopes are pointing in the right way, etc., is incredibly complex. But if we keep listening, and if there are advanced civilizations that haven't gone the way that we're going in terms of almost blowing ourselves up for the last 100 years, and now effectively we're going to be kicking out the, the night sky pretty soon and not able to launch anything if this mega constellation mess uh, isn't arrested pretty soon. Uh, if they haven't done that, then potentially they could be leaking radio signals into space and that's the whole premise of SETI and um, with what they're doing here it's it's exciting it's interesting it's probably an anomalous signal I don't know if you've got any thoughts on this Terry but it, it, it was a good story yeah the, the interesting thing about it was an incredibly narrow frequency it was actually in any 2.002 frequency and they reckon that is much too narrow a frequency to have been created uh, naturally so you know as was either us or it was them and them being the, the aliens. Uh, the other interesting thing about it is, again, like they are one of our favorite films, Contact, with the radio telescope away from that direction, the signal disappeared. And when they moved it back again, the signal appeared again. They call it nodding. So that's interesting. Uh, so they're 
couple of things that indicate that it's very unlikely that this was uh, something just in, in sort of the backyard of the telescope. On the other hand, Proxima Centauri and the planet around it are not really prime candidates for intelligent life. There's one one thing in its favor. The star system itself is about 200 million years older than the sun, so there's plenty of time for life to have actually evolved on it. But red dwarfs are notoriously nasty in terms of uh, sending off lots of ultraviolet radio radiation and flares and so on. And even from that, the planet is so close in that it's tidally locked. It has one face uh, constantly pointed towards the star. So one side will be blisteringly hot, the other side will be very, very cool. There would, of course, be a, a sort of a transition zone between the, the two where conditions would be more reasonable. So it's not impossible to have life there, but I think it's extremely unlikely. So they'll probably find out eventually that this was man-made, either something on Earth or possibly something from, from a satellite in orbit around the Earth, although none of the satellites actually naturally broadcast at that frequency. So this is why it's so interesting. There's no ready explanation for what that signal was. What, what I've always found really interesting is this kind of two questions relating to this. The first one is, if we were to ever detect a signal that was unambiguously generated by an alien intelligence, what do we do then? It's the round yeah. trip, obviously, we're talking about years. So having conversations is difficult. But then... Would that spur on the space agencies into developing these ultra high speed transit systems where we could, you know, potentially send just a robotic probe out to the length, you know, a distance of Proxima Centauri in maybe 40 years at one tenth light speed? Would that spur it on? The other thing that always interests me is that we've had, you know, a planet as we know it, planet Earth for best part of 4 billion years now, and intelligent life that has had the ability to write for maybe. 8,000 years and, you know, colonize and farm, etc. The ability to transmit radio signals for 100, 150 years. And very soon that ability to transmit radio signals in the analog way that we used to is diminishing all the time. So you've got such an incredibly staggeringly small gap in the evolution of, of intelligent life, for want of a better term, on this planet to transmit these signals. The chances of finding another planet anywhere in our galaxy and okay we've got 250 billion stars in our galaxy so potentially 250 billion times nine planets and then you've got 250 billion galaxies so yes there is life out there there is absolutely no doubt in my mind and a lot of scientists mind that there is life somewhere else in the universe uh, it would be ridiculous if we're the only ones but it's that kind of narrow way of thinking that is like well okay it's a radio signal and i know there's precious little else we can do but there's got to be a better way of doing this in terms of surveying. And like I, said, I go back to things like the SKA and this ability to look at planetary atmospheres and look at biosignatures and biomarkers in the atmospheres and potentially registering like the exact temperature of the planet. You know, and we've got all these super hot, uh, super Jupiters, these hot Jupiters, etc., orbiting incredibly close to the stars. They're not really going to be harboring life as we know it, but hopefully as technology gets better and better we're going to be able to see more of these exoplanets and maybe do a bit more investigation but it always kind of boils back to the question of yeah then what what are we going to do then who knows anyway moving on bit a lot closer to home <laughs> uh terry this is one you found i love this yeah um the americans are great at having what they call interns or studentships and uh, this is a case where a 17-year-old schoolboy from New York 
got a job as an intern working for NASA. And within three days, he found his own exoplanet. So what are the chances of that? Uh, absolutely amazing. Um, it's just one of those stories that's almost too good to be true. 17 years old, and he joins the, the club of uh, very, very few people who have actually found uh, another planet and another uh, star system. His name is Wolf Kukier, or Chukier, I'm not sure how you pronounce it. And um, he was working at uh, his school, the Scardale High School in New York. He got this uh, internship at our Space Flight Center and was working on what we've already mentioned earlier, TESS, the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite. And he was looking at, at data and uh, he came up with this uh, little anomaly and investigated it. And it turns out to be another planet going around another star. That's quite interesting. Uh, for a start, it's very far away. It's 1,300 light years away in the southern constellation of Pictor, so we wouldn't see it here from anyway. But the planet is actually as big as Saturn, so it's quite a big one. So far, it's the only one known in that system. Quite a lot of uh, systems that we see now have, have more than one uh, planet going in them. But the interesting thing, and the really interesting thing about this, and again, he joins a very exclusive club, it's a planet that is going around two stars. So the two stars are orbiting uh, very close together, and the planet is so far out that it orbits around both of them. And those systems are really incredibly rare. So for this 17-year-old schoolboy, to go on a, a basically a summer job, if you like, and to discover one of those is just absolutely amazing. It must be, as they say, over the moon. The, the, the inspiration on this is brilliant, and it kind of points back to projects like the Zooniverse, for example. I know Chris Lintott, yeah. um, who was at Oxford University many, many years ago, set up this whole idea of using citizen science, lots and lots, thousands and thousands of people to go looking for things. Uh, one of the most famous discoveries was Hanny van Arkel when she's discovered the Hanny's verb, Hanny's object, yeah. as it were, this kind of green blob in space that got her name. Um, so it's one of those things that if you've got kids at home and they are struggling and they're stuck in lockdown, there's fantastic citizen science experiments. You don't have to work for NASA. You don't have to be at NASA Goddard or wherever uh, to make these kind of discoveries. It's one of those things that anyone can do and anyone latch on to. I love stories like this. And it ties in quite nicely, talking about interns working for the US administration, to our next story, um, if we want to go back to Bill Clinton's day, um, and Monica Lewinsky, which will come into this story in some part. So the Biden administration has recently been sworn in, and they're making some sweeping changes. We're not going to go into the politics. Uh, everyone was really just hoping that the continuation of the great work that people like Jim Bridenstine had done at NASA in t for the last four years, you know, one of the few appointments that Trump really got right. He was so well-liked and respected amongst the entire scientific and engineering community for his stance on, you know, really driving forward what they were doing with, with the scientific exploration for the moon in particular. Now we've got the Artemis program still on schedule. They've had you know some issues obviously with the SLS test fire. It's supposed to be for eight minutes, only ran on for 67 seconds. They're probably going to do that again at some point. They're still optimistically hoping for a November launch with the SLS. There's all sorts of issues and arguments as to whether or not that thing should even continue, but that's by the by. 
What I love about this is that Biden has replaced so many things in the Oval Office. He's changed the carpets. He's changed a lot of the busts and statues. There's a whole brouhaha about him removing Winston Churchill's uh, bust from the Oval Office. Who cares? He's got his inspirations. This is what we love about these these changes. And what he's done is for only the, I think, the second time he's requested or his administration have requested uh, a moon rock as part of the display in the Oval Office as a way to inspire you know, and to remember what the national goals are for the United States. And obviously with the Artemis Accords, it's not just a national goal. There's huge involvement from the European Space Agency uh, who are developing the whole service module for the Artemis program. You've got uh, the Orion, which has already been developed. Uh, SLS itself, you've got all the uh, massive involvement from the European side with Talos Alenia Space, for example, doing a lot of work on uh, the kind of way station, as it were, and the refueling station. So there's so much international involvement on this that I love this story. And as I said, it's only the second time. So this moon rock uh, came from Apollo 17. So Gene Cernan, who I knew and loved and spoke to many, many times, great guy, sadly passed away four years ago this week. Um, and Jack Schmidt, Harrison Schmidt, who I met a few years ago, and uh, Ron Evans, who was the command module pilot. So Apollo 17, the last mission to the moon in 1972. Uh, hopefully not the last one very soon. In the next few years, we may see more boots on the ground, including the first female on the moon, which would be fantastic. Um, so this was uh, a rock picked up in the Taurus, Taurus Littrow region, which is where Apollo 17 uh, landed. Uh, ran about two miles, uh, I think, they believe, from where the lunar module landed. So they went out on the rover, collected inordinate amounts of rocks, brought them back. These are still being studied to this day. And NASA have kindly loaned this protected Apollo 17 lunar sample weighs about 330 grams. Um, so it's quite a chunky sample. It'd be worth billions. You don't even want to go there. If you want to talk about interns, there's a great book called Sex on the Moon. If you haven't read it, just Google it. It's about an intern who got a job and stole. Basically, it was the biggest theft in history. He stole an entire cabinet about four feet high, full of moon rocks. This thing was worth trillions um, if you want to talk about monetary value even though it's a legal federal offense to own a moon rock uh, from the apollo space program some of them have been gifted to various nations around the world some of them gone missing um, but this is from apollo 17 which is interesting because a few years ago when clinton was in power and this again goes back to the humor story and link with the interns um, but when bill clinton was in uh, the oval office as president he requested an apollo 11 sample and that was dropped off by the crew so the crew were there uh, not dropped off by but they were there for the kind of unveiling of this a moon rock and you know he he cited it as a way to solve arguments. So if you had disgruntled Republican senators or disgruntled Democrat senators in the office and they were having arguments and they weren't really, really getting anywhere, Bill Clinton apparently would turn to this moon rock, point to it and say, you see that? That's been here. Oh, that's been around for about four billion years. We're only a small drop in the ocean. We're like a blip in history. So can we just move on and get these get this thing sorted, please? I just love that. And I'm hoping Biden, uh, his demeanor's come across extremely well. He looks like a phenomenal president. Some of the appointing, uh, appointments he's made already look really, really promising. Uh, we're hoping that science, you know, obviously it's going to help with COVID, but we hope that on the back of that, that the US public uh, will get much more behind science and see the true value of science. So uh, I love this. Uh, I don't know if you've got any thoughts, Terry, just fantastic that he's got it in there. 
Yeah, I, I mean, it's such a change from the last administration, generally trying to steer clear of politics in this. But it's, there's no doubt that Biden is much more pro-science and he wants to show it. And the very fact that he's putting a piece of moon rock there in the Oval Office shows that he wants to go with the science, whether it's COVID or something else. And there's one other thing. There was an awful lot of play made during the election about how old Biden was when he can say, if you think I'm old, look at this rock. <laughs> Exactly, and that was that was the interesting thing when they were talking about that, and they had the three amigos, as it were, the three former presidents uh, in Barack Obama and George W. Bush and Clinton. And when they said that Biden was older than all of them, it really does hit home. But you know, it's experience. He's he's seen the Apollo program. He's grown up through the Apollo program. Yeah. You know, all of the other former presidents that I just mentioned, but he's probably got such a an interesting take on the development and evolution of the space program, having been there literally, you know, alive since since day one, as it were. So um, let's hope uh, it's all we can do. Fingers crossed, and let's hope that uh, this love of science uh, continues. Moving on to our next uh, interesting story, and this is again one that Terry's going to lead on. Um, why do supernovas happen? Because didn't we know this? Yeah. <clears throat> We thought we knew how supernovas exploded. Basically, and this is simplifying an awful lot of very complicated astrophysics, when a giant star is getting near the end of its life, it uses up almost all of the fuel in the core of the star. And it's the radiation from the conversion of that uh, fuel into energy that stops the, car, the star from collapsing on itself. So the radiation pressure coming out from the core stops the outer layers of, of the star, which are trying to collapse under gravity. Whenever, and this again is simplifying it considerably, whenever you reach a particular stage in the process of uh, turning one element into the next one by nuclear fusion, basically when you get to iron, you get a negative reaction. In other words, to create anything heavier than iron, you need to put in more energy than the reaction uh, pumps out. So the star suddenly stops producing energy. And that means that gravity takes over and the outer layers of the star collide, hit the core and bounce off again. That's the simple version. But when you look at it in detail, actually what should happen is that as outer layers continue to collapse in on the star, they should suppress the initials. So they, they inner part of the atmosphere that comes down and hits the core starts to bounce off again, but there's trillions upon trillions of tons of stuff still to come in on top of that, and that should, in theory, according to the simulations, have killed the, the explosion dead. So what they've now done, using some very, very advanced computing, that they've worked out that basically there's so much turbulence in the explosion that it mixes everything up and again, simplifying it very, very uh, considerably, that is enough to allow the explosion to actually happen. And what happens is that the star blows off all its outer layers, of uh, which are basically radiating plasma. They, uh, there's not only a huge amount of energy uh, created, but the diameter of the visible part of the star increases exponentially as this thing expands. And suddenly the star increases by a factor of hundreds of millions of times, and that's what we see. It is uh, the bright, sometimes a supernova in a galaxy is brighter than all the other stars in the galaxy put together. Now, the astrophysics in this, as I say, is, is way out of my pay grade, uh, but they have used these supercomputers to com uh, confirm that it's the turbulence 
uh, of the thing which is represented there that allows the explosion to actually proceed and the infalling stuff does not suppress it. Nick, you probably know more about this than I do. No, in terms of supernovas, it's a shame that we really haven't had a decent one in our neck of the woods. SN97A was the last semi-big one uh, in in our neighbourhood, as it were. Um, and it's really interesting looking at some of the Hubble images that were taken, you know, not long after that happened, and how it's evolved and how this cloud of material post supernova has developed. Um, the last big one, you know, in our neck of the woods, 1054, maybe with the formation of the Crab Nebula, when we had a supernova that was visible for weeks in broad daylight, everyone got really excited about Betelgeuse and the, the potential. That is going to go. That is going to go pop. And when it goes pop, it's going to be as bright as a full moon. You'll be able to see that in broad daylight. And the constellation of Orion will never look the same again. Um, but right now, we're just we're waiting. We don't know. There was a cracking one. I think it was M81 or M82 uh, a few years ago that was detected by uh, some students in London. London, um, who were imaging the cigar galaxy. I think it was was both. I'm, I'm trying to remember which one it was, but essentially that was imaged. Um, and again, some great data from this is people who study the evolution of stars and solar evolution, supernovas, etc., for their entire lives. And to find again something new that's happening in something we thought we fully understood. And until we get something with modern technology and the instrumentation that we've now got that we can really monitor, if we if we know a star is about to go pop and we get things like neutrino bursts ahead of the light flash, etc., there's a potential to really see this happening as it evolves. And if it's a nearby star with the resolution that we've got with Hubble, that's able to do surface mapping on Betelgeuse. Could you imagine the quality of data coming back from Betelgeuse going into this core collapse state and watching it happen over a period of days, minutes, weeks, whatever. Uh, it's going to be incredible. It's, it's really, really exciting. And I, I wasn't that excited when I studied astrophysics all those years ago about stellar evolution and supernovas, etc. But this is this is really, it, it bucks the trend. It's, it's one of those things that you think, we knew this, but no, we don't. We're always learning. And that's the great thing about science. So for any kids who are tuning into this, when your parents say, we know best, just point them at stories like this and say, you don't know everything yet. <laughs> it's so true. Anyway, moving on to a kind of linked story, um, GNZ11. So a lot of stars nearby have snappy names like Betelgeuse and Sirius and Procyon and Nigel and Algol and etc etc uh, but then there's gazillions of stars out there and they're normally named you know potentially by their right ascension and declination their kind of stellar coordinates where they're in the sky uh, sometimes they're named after the constellation that they're in but then you've got these really really interesting deep field objects uh, and the galaxies now we all know about the Hubble uh, deep field which was taken decades ago now and the Hubble ultra deep field a little less time ago where literally the telescope using uh, director's discretionary time was pointing at this minuscule patch of sky. When I say minuscule, everyone thinks, oh, the Hubble's a big telescope, so surely it can see huge amounts of sky. If you hold out your arm, full arm's length, and the tip of your little finger, that's about the size of the imaging field of the Hubble Space Telescope. It's minuscule, right? So if you're looking at something like the, the full moon, for example, it's you'd need multi even if you could image the full moon with the Hubble, you can't. It's it's this tiny, tiny, tiny little field of view that they have to piece together. So if they want to do composites like the Eagle Nebula, the famous Pillars of Creation, that's a composite of multiple images. With the Hubble deep, ultra deep field, what they did was they pointed at this blank patch of sky and got the deepest 
images ever. And there's been follow-ons from this. There's been all sorts of, of different uh, imaging surveys uh, done using the Hubble and various other ground-based telescopes as well, which are getting better and better. Now, what they're trying to do is essentially look back as far as is possible. Now, we talked about Hubble and the expansion of the universe and the Hubble constant in the last show and how basically as things get further away, they're receding, get closer and closer to the velocity of light. They, they're essentially, from our perspective, moving away from us quicker. So they get moved into the red end of the spectrum. There's this thing called redshift. So basically, uh, if you listen to a police siren or an ambulance siren as it goes past you, you have what's called a Doppler shift. So the frequency of the sound changes. It kind of gets compressed as it's coming towards you and kind of pulled apart as it's moving away. So you hear a change in the frequency of the sound. And that's essentially what's happening for, in a very simplistic way with galaxies. Some of the galaxies, not many of them are coming towards us. So the Andromeda galaxy, for example, is coming towards us. There is going to be a collision between our galaxy and it in the next however many hundreds of millions or billions of years. Uh, but most of the galaxies are shooting away from us. Now, what these surveys are trying to do is effectively look at the origins of the universe. We believe that this the Big Bang happened around about 13.78 to 13.81 billion years ago. We talked about that in the last show. But the ability to image out of those distances isn't something that we currently have the capability to do. This this cosmic dark zone, as it were, out beyond you know where the Hubble Ultra Deep Field was getting that we can't really see. And this is where again telescopes like the SKA are hopefully going to be able to see some of this area, this you know epoch of reionization, etc. Post the Big Bang. But what they have imaged is what we now believe to be the farthest galaxy ever seen, which is snappily titled GNZ11. Now, it's called GNZ11 because the Z, or this recessional, um, this, this factor value, uh, is 11.09. So this is essentially one of the deepest objects at 13, point, I think it's at 13.4 billion light year kind of distance. So only, if you believe that the Big Bang happened at 13.8 billion years ago, 400 million years after the beginning of our universe. And we've already got a galaxy with stellar evolution happening. So why is this important? This is important because it shouldn't be happening at this rate. There's, it's kind of throwing a whole big set of questions that, well, hold on, stellar evolution, the evolution of an entire galaxy in a shorter timing, in cosmic timescales, 400 million years is nothing. You know, if you think our Earth's been around for four point whatever billion years, these are incredibly short timescales. And to have a galaxy at these redshifts, uh, these distances, I said 13.4 billion light year um, kind of distances out towards the Big Bang. How is this happening? And that's the big question. Also, this galaxy, in terms of its stellar evolution, it's only 1 25th the size of our galaxy. And it has, I believe, about 1% of the mass. So the, the whole evolution of galaxies and stellar evolution models that every cosmologist and every astrophysicist has kind of said, well, this is how it works. Those are slowly being ripped up a little bit, Terry. I don't know if you've got any more thoughts on this, but I found this really, really interesting. Uh, yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. And, and the problem is, how did something with a mass of 1.6 billion suns, a black hole of 1.6 billion suns mass, form so quickly? There's barely time for the galaxy to form, yeah. let alone for this black hole to form. And as far as we know, black holes don't form in one big uh, instantaneous or, or gradual process. They start off perhaps with uh, the black hole forming from a supernova explosion or a hypernova explosion, and then that sucks in uh, the surrounding material. But to suck in the mass of 1.6 billion 
different suns. Basically, according to our present theories, there wasn't time for that to happen. So how the heck can you have a supermassive black hole with a mass of 1.6 billion suns and, as you say, just shortly after, in astronomical terms, shortly after the formation of uh, the universe in the Big Bang. Uh, the interesting thing is, although this one is only slightly further away, by 20 million light years further away than the previous record holder, the black hole in this one is twice the size of the black hole in the next per, um, most distant one. So again, that's the conundrum. It's even further away. We're seeing as it was even younger, and yet it has already got a black hole twice the mass of the previous record holder just does not make sense begin i begin to think at this time don't we ever have any doubts was the speed of light constant during the whole uh, period of the universe are we right in thinking that a red shift of z does indicate that age because that's one of the ways that you could explain it in other words it's it's not as as young when we're looking at it as old as as the light that we see coming from it but as young as we interpret that to be in terms of the age of the universe but they the uh, astrophysicists always hit me overhead metaphorically if i even dare to suggest the speed same of light may not have been constant <laughs> same here i mean you've, you've got to break the laws of physics for the big bang to work anyway in terms yeah. of expansion etc and yeah alan goo from various theories that have been knocking around for, for years and it was really interesting when I was at university many, 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 many years ago. Um, Fred Hoyle came in, uh, obviously a big proponent of steady state theory. Um, and, you know, yes, there's so much mathematical proof and we've got the cosmic, cosmic microwave background. We've got every part of, you know, the evidence chain that we could possibly desire to say, yes, there was a big bang. But there's always that nagging doubt when things like this crop up. It's like, OK, so how does that work then? Um, and it's again, it points back to we don't understand everything. And this is the beautiful journey of astronomy um, in that, you know, there may be somebody out there listening, maybe a young person in primary school, secondary school, you, you know, maybe just listening and thinking, who are these two old guys talking about astronomy? We were you, we were you at one point. We were the young people um, who got fired up and excited watching Star Wars, watching Voyager, watching the Vikings land, etc. And thought, this is really, really cool. And you know, don't don't ever count yourself out as Gene Cernan when we were talking about Apollo 17 and that moon rock. Don't ever count yourself out. Somebody out there is going to figure this out one day. We don't understand, you know, everything there is to know. We haven't got a grand unified theory yet. We've got, you know, theories down at the quantum level. We've got theories at the galactic level. There isn't a grand unified theory yet. There's, there's still so much to be discovered. And when things like this happen, and Terry and I are, like, scratching our heads, and all the professional astronomers that we speak to are scratching their heads and going, can't work this one out yet and maybe somebody will in the not too distant future there'll be some theory some elaborate theory but what we tend to see is a lot of astronomers kind of throwing in almost like fudge factors oh it's going to be dark this or dark energy or dark it's like okay but occam's razor the whole the the, the simplest answer is always the one so if you keep having to throw in all these convoluted ways to explain something surely at some point it's gonna break down it's like going back five six hundred years when everyone was saying oh the earth is the center of the universe and everything revolves around us and oh mars well mars does this because it's like no it was all hokum and when we got to the the basics of, of what was really happening and you know newtonian physics and newtonian gravity which stood the test of time all the way up to einstein when it got refined even more um we're going to keep refining our ideas and keep understanding new stuff so it's one of those things that 
this is why we love it. This is why we love what we do because every time there's a curveball throw. Uh, I don't know what you think, Terry, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, as you say, uh, 120 odd years ago, Newton described the universe as near perfectly as made no difference. Along comes Einstein, and it's a whole new ball game. And it's not so much that Newton was wrong. It was just that it was not a full description. And when you get to supermassive uh, objects and very high velocities, simply Newtonian physics doesn't work. Uh, at the moment, relativistic physics and quantum physics give the best description of the universe that we have at the moment, and particularly quantum physics, to very, very high accuracies in, in all the experiments that have been carried out. But in another 20 years, Something may have come along and says, right, even quantum physics or relativity are not the full story. And that's where, as you say, the next generation of scientists coming along have to play their part. Yep. So that leads us on really nicely to our final segment, which is look up. Um, we're in lockdown. Astronomy, you tried buying a telescope over Christmas. It was next to impossible. I had loads of friends saying, oh, I want to get my kids a telescope for Christmas. What should I buy them? And I'd be pointing them at various websites and saying, these telescopes are great, you know, depending on the budget and what have it. And you just couldn't buy them because lockdown has given lots of people the opportunity to re-engage with nature uh, in a big way. Um, things like Spring Watch and Nature Watch and Winter Watch and all these programs that the BBC are airing at the moment, really encouraging people to engage with nature. And the night sky is nature. It's the best free light show you're ever going to get. You buy a telescope or even a good set of binoculars, you can sit out every night and you can make a discovery. You know, uh, what's it, Olcock uh, from his bedroom with a pair of binoculars, um, discovering comets. The, this is the kind of thing that can still happen. Amateurs, amateur astronomers in their back gardens with back garden equipment are still discovering new comets. So uh, it's one of those wonderful things that you can just sit out there and do. And right now what's happening, and uh, Terry's got a few uh, words to say on this, the uh, Royal Society for the Protection of Birds in the UK, the RSPB, are doing a thing where they're encouraging people to set up bird feeders in their back garden. And then for one hour, uh, have a look at the birds that are coming into your garden. So you've got robins, you've got blackbirds, you've got all sorts of different bird species. And what they're asking people to do is to count the different types of birds. Now, my challenge for look up for this, this fortnight is do the same with the sky. But if you've got a telescope and if you've got a camera attached to it, and a lot of amateur astronomers, they love showing off their fantastic uh, astro images. You know, they'll spend thousands of pounds getting these fantastic images of the night sky and what have you, and, and then posting them on Facebook and Twitter and what have you, and saying, well, look at me, aren't I fantastic? What I'm asking all of these amateur astronomers to do is take the images that you've taken of objects that you may revisit. So lots of amateurs at this time of year like to image the Orion Nebula, for example, and the surrounding things like uh, the Rosette Nebula, uh, the California Nebula, all sorts of things around near the Orion kind of area of the sky. Um, and Ursa Major and various other things. If you've got a particular object that you've imaged maybe several times and you've kept all that data over the past 10, 5, whatever years you've been imaging for, Go back to that data and instead of doing some fancy processing to make it look really pretty, get all of the individual images and just stack them in on top of each other in what's called a sum stack. So don't do all the you know, reduction and noise reduction, etc. Just stack all the images on top of each other. And take an image that you may have taken a year or two or three years ago of a specific part of the sky and see how many satellites are going through that image over the time you've imaged it. So if you've been imaging Orion for maybe six or seven hours in an evening, which people do, it's quite common. Um, so many satellites go through that area of the sky, it may not be that many, but in certain areas of the sky, there's going to be a lot more. And this isn't just a challenge for this fortnight, this is a challenge that's ongoing. Because what 
the evidence is growing now and it's mounting and the national astronomy meeting which is happening in the uk later this year hopefully uh, in the city of bath there's a big debate on mega constellations and their impact on astronomy and what we're looking for is real evidence so if you've got the ability to take images of specific regions of the sky don't just do all the fancy processing to remove everything all the junk that's flying through it stack the images we want to see what the real impact is because while Starlink, for example, have said, oh, we're putting sun shields on and we've reduced the visibility down to magnitude seven. So that's great. The public can't see it. If you look up in the sky, you can't see beyond magnitude six, even on a really good dark sky. And if you've got pristine eyesight, um, mag seven, it's out of sight, out of mind. It's like the plastic in the ocean. It's out of sight, out of mind. But this is a real and growing problem, not just for astronomy, but for the world. Um, because if these things collide and create what's called the Kessler syndrome, uh, we're not going to be launching anything and we're going to have no Earth observation. We're going to have no satellite monitoring. You know, what's happening with COVID now is going to seem like a drop in the ocean compared to what would happen in terms of the global economy if we lost all satellite capability. So it's one of those things that I know I'm really passionate about. And I'd say to any of the amateurs out there who've got decent camera equipment, take images of the same area of sky and just stack them and see what you get. Um, if you don't know about stacking, there's loads of great websites that teach you how to do that. There's loads of great free software that helps you do it. Um, it's one of those things that I really uh, want to try and present as evidence. Terry, back to happier things. What, what do you think is a, is a good target for the next few weeks? Right. Uh, I've got to concentrate on just one satellite and the International Space Station, which, of course, is the ah. best known one. And we just happen to be at the moment right in the middle of a very good series of evening passes. In other words, shortly after sunset over uh, UK and Ireland. And it's interesting not only to go out and see it, but to think of how you can see it and why you can see it and why you can't see it sometimes. It's orbiting around the Earth, of course, all the time, but it doesn't always pass over the UK and Ireland. But even when it does pass over the UK and Ireland, you don't always see it, partly because it may be passing over in daylight and partly because it may be passing over at night, but you still can't see it. And why is that? The reason is that the ISS has no light of its own. It's simply shining by reflecting sunlight. And so if the sun is way down deep below the horizon as we are looking, there's, the Earth's shadow is extending up into space. And when this International Space Station is passing over, it's in that shadow and therefore you can't see it. So to cut to the chase, the only time when you can see the International Space Station illuminated by the sun is relatively soon after sunset when the sky gets dark enough and in the early mornings before uh, dawn. And that's when the sun is only between, say, 10 and 20 off the top of the head, degrees below the horizon. So the sun is still shining up into space where the International Space Station is, and therefore we can see it as we pass this over. But the next pass, when it comes over, the sun may have gone so far below the horizon that it is no longer uh, illuminated by the sun. But it so happens at the moment we're getting a really good series of passes. If you go to uh, a website like uh, Heavens Above, www.heavens-above.com and enter your own location, that will tell you when the ISS is passing over and visible in your location. And a cutting in the sky apart from the moon, considerably brighter even and serious. So now's a good series of nights right up until early February, the second or third of February, to get some really good evening passes and go out and see it. And it just look at thing going across the sky at seventeen and a half thousand miles per hour. 
Next. Absolutely. 17,500 miles an hour. Loads of people on board. There have been now for many decades. The thing's the size of a football pitch. It potentially is not going to be up there forever. Depends what happens if the Russians start pulling their bits off it, etc. Who knows? But it's a, it's a great thing to watch. There's a, there's a guy on Twitter called Virtual Astro who's got masses of people who follow him and he does some great work in terms of outreach uh, when it comes to ISS passes and as Terry said there's loads of free software you can get it on your phone even if you don't know where you're looking you can point you hold your phone up to the sky and it will give you yeah. a kind of augmented reality view of what you're looking at um, just as we're closing off again it's the first time we've been using this system um, thanks to everyone who's been tuning in we've got uh, people I can see live we know that we've got loads of people who watch us in kind of catch-up mode as it were on YouTube um, it's really great that we've built from a following of one to over 350 I believe uh, which is really really nice all thanks to the space store they do some great work um they're not active in terms of the store at the moment obviously we're still in a state of national lockdown in the uk but please support these small companies because it's it's a case of use them or lose them we you know we need people like this and it's great to see as i said oxford space systems and i know some of the people at oss really well uh, michael is one of the guys there brilliant brilliant team developed some remarkable technology uh, so it's really nice to have them uh, supporting as well and also ocean minders there's it's great to see people supporting this and what we're trying to do here is is stem it's outreach you know terry and i give up our time every two weeks completely voluntarily along with luke latch and all the other people at space store who make this happen um and it's all voluntary and we just we just do it because we love what we're doing and we love kind of communicating science and space to anyone who's listening either live or, or on catch-up so again a huge thank you to everyone who's helping us and everyone who's listening and I've got an amazing co-host in Terry. I do genuinely love the guy. It's just brilliant. Uh, and I can't wait to get back over to Ireland again. It's like, it's been a year now of lockdown and it's, it's getting to all of us. And I know everyone's getting Zoom fatigue and, you know, anyone who's a parent is got nightmares in terms of having the kids at home for ages. But uh, this is one of the few times in the week where I really just enjoy and forget about everything that's going on in the big world. So I don't know if you've yeah. got any final thoughts, Terry, but. Yeah, I can't wait to get over and see Space Store live. Uh, I obviously know of them through this, but I never visit with them. But as soon as the flights allow and the restrictions are lifted, I'll be over to see you all. So thanks for hosting it and also to Oxford. Cheers. Back to lunch. Thank you for listening to the Space Roundup podcast. You can tune in live to hear from Nick and Terry and be part of the Q&A every other Tuesday at 7.30pm on youtube.com forward slash space door live whilst you're there catch up with season one of the space roundup and lots more like what you heard today why not support us by visiting our website spacedoor.co and check out how we are bringing space to everyone everywhere every day